Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Effective Altruism Forum Weekly. My name is Colin Snell. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This is, of course, the show where we summarize the top articles and conversations from the last week happening on the Effective Altruism Forum. That helps to give a snapshot of what the community is thinking about and writing about right now. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and thank you to Zoe Williams for writing these amazing pieces. Thank you to Type 3 Audio for helping with uploading and hosting to our RSS feed, and thank you to Rethink Priorities for their general support. Without any further ado, we can go ahead and jump right into the episode for the 23rd to the 29th of January. Starting off with the Philosophy Methodology section, we have Rethink Priorities Welfare Range Estimates by Bob Fisher. This is a piece where the authors build off of analysis that rests upon the rest of the Moral Weight Project sequence. In this sequence, they offer different estimates on the welfare range of 11 farmed species. A welfare range is the estimated difference between the most intensely positive valence state, or pleasurable state, and most negatively valence state, that is a state of pain, that members of the species can experience relative to humans. If a human is a 1.0, pigs are seen as, from this set of estimates, as 0.515, chickens at about 0.3, carp, surprisingly enough, are at 0.089, and all the way down to silkworms, which are at 0.002. The authors stress that these estimates should be seen as a starting point. They are based off of the best available placeholder information from neuroscience and from philosophy, as well as other more specifically empirically driven research areas into welfare. The next piece we have is by Mohammed Islam Huda, and it's called Existential Risk Modeling with Continuous Time Markov Chains. Continuous Time Markov Chains, which we'll be referring to as CTMCs, are a popular tool used throughout industry, e.g. in insurance, epidemiology, and other major com- computationally rich areas of modeling. It's also used throughout academia to model multi-state systems. Advantages of the methodology for X-risk modeling include the ability to model multiple competing X-risks and incorporate things that modify and interact with X-risks but aren't X-risks in themselves. These are case scenarios of things like 3 degrees Celsius warming of climate change. And this also confers the ability to assume X-risk probabilities that vary over time as well. The author discusses how CTMCs work, compares them to other approaches such as discrete Markov chain models, and produces a model based off of Toby Ord's probability estimates in the precipice for demonstration purposes. Moving on to the object-level interventions and reviews section, and starting off specifically with artificial intelligence-related posts, we have Nuno Sempre's My Highly Personal Skepticism Brain Dump on Existential Risk from Artificial Intelligence. The author views existential risk from AGI as important, but thinks something is going wrong in the reasoning that concludes doom from AGI is certain or nearly certain. They give three reasons to support this skepticism. Number one, distrust of reasoning chains using fuzzy concepts. For example, in some arguments, a lot of different things need to happen in very specific ways for AI X risk to actually occur, some of which are still very fuzzily defined. Number two, Distrust of selection effects at the level of arguments. These are things like more effort has gone into AI X-risk arguments than into the counter-arguments themselves. There's just more compute there in our own heads, in our own brains in the community, and therefore the arguments are going to seem more robust. Third, 
Distrust of community dynamics. This is a concern around people who move to the Bay Area and who often seem to update to higher AI risk scenarios or estimates, which might indicate some social incentives. The next AI-related post is by Tom Davidson. It's called What a Compute-Centric Framework Says About AI Takeoff Speeds, a draft report. In this piece, Tom Davidson describes high-level takeoffs from the author's draft report on AI takeoff speeds. The report builds heavily on the BioAnchors report by Asia Kotra, with major changes including modeling a increased investment in AI as AGI approaches and also gains attention, and b AI starting to automate AI R&D tasks, which both accelerate timelines. To define a few words here, a, quote, takeoff period is defined as the time between when AI can, not necessarily has already done so, but can readily automate 20% of cognitive tasks to when it can perform 100% of cognitive tasks. The later where it can perform 100% of cognitive tasks is considered artificial general intelligence, or AGI. A connected term here is readily automate, which means that AGI would be profitable and doable within one year's time. The post then goes into talking about different current probabilities conditional on AGI by 2100. Different estimates there are 10%, 25, 50, and 80% levels of certainty, and respectively it's 10% for a three-month takeoff period, 25% certainty for a one-year takeoff period or less, 50% for a three-year takeoff period, and 80% for a 10-year takeoff period. The author also goes into a few different quantitative models of AGI timelines and takeoff speeds, which include a series of takeaways on capabilities, impact of takeoff, impact of takeoff speed, and how it might correlate to unaligned AGI, as well as things relating to fixed AGI difficulty. Nonetheless, it's a great article. Be sure to check it out. The next article we have is called New York Times. Google will, quote, recalibrate the risk of releasing AI due to competition with open AI, cross-posted by Michael Huang. This is a link post to the New York Times article of the same name, in which the article reports that Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Alphabet and Google, is trying to speed up the release of AI technology by taking on more risk. And to be precisely clear, we're talking about existential risk here, existential risk in relation to potential impacts quite catastrophic impacts of AGI or AI being released without proper consideration of development. They're doing this by accelerating ethics approval times and recalibrating the allowable risk they're willing to take on on behalf of humanity. This is despite Demis Hazabis, the CEO of the subsidiary DeepMind, urging caution in his own interview with the Times due to AI being, quote, on the cusp of tools that could deeply damage human civilization. For time's sake, we have a few different AI posts that are still to come down the pipeline that you can check out in Zoe's full write-up of the summaries for the week. However, uh, for the podcast length, we're trying to keep it under 15 or 20 minutes, and there are about five more posts, so I'm just going to read the names off of them so you can stay informed, uh, and I'll also give a brief, a very, very brief glimpse of what each one is about if the title is not uh, enlightening enough. However, uh, the first one of these is update to the Somosveti AGI timelines announced by Misha Yugandin, Jonathan Mann, and Nuno Sempre. Uh, Somosveti is a forecasting group, uh, and they produced an aggregate results from their recent AGI timelines forecasting. Another major post is large language models learned to represent the world by GJM. Next is Gradient Hacking is Extremely Difficult by Baron. 
After that, we have Alexander Nukowski on AGI goals. This is posted by Scott Alexander and Eliza Yukowski. Next, we have parameter scaling comes for RL, maybe, by 1A30RN. After that, we have thoughts on the impact of RLHF research by Paul Cristiano. And now we are on to the other existential risks section for the week. For the object level, existential risk more broadly section for the week, we have a first post called Call Me Maybe, Hotlines and Global Catastrophic Risk, Founders Pledge by Christina R, or Christian R, that is, my apologies. This is a summary of a shallow investigation by Founders Pledge on direct communication links. These are DCLs and hotlines between states as global catastrophic risk interventions. These, quote, hotlines are intended to help leaders diffuse the worst possible crises and to limit or terminate war, especially nuclear war, when it does break out. They are so far untested in these high-stake applications, but are nonetheless being developed to be as effective as possible in such situations if they are to, unfortunately, occur. The most important dyadic adversarial relationships, these are like the U.S. and China relationship or U.S. and Russia relationship. Other notable ones are Pakistan, India, and India and China already have existing hotlines between them. Based on this, they suggest forming new hotlines as an unlikely candidate for effective philanthropy. However, other interventions in the space might be worthwhile if sequenced correctly. For instance, understanding whether they work, what political and institutional issues affect their functioning, why China does not pick up crisis communication channels in times of crisis, and improving hotline resiliency to things such as nuclear war or electromagnetic pulses are all our specific applicable areas for potential research. For the Global Health and Development section, the first post is by Henry Howard, called Dean Carlin is now Chief Economist of U.S. Aid. Dean Carlin is, an adult, is a developmental economist who founded Innovations for Poverty Action, IPA, and is on the executive committee of the Jamil Poverty Action Lab, J-Paul. IPA and J-Paul have been responsible for a lot of the research that underpins GiveWell's charity recommendations and effectiveness modeling. In November 2022, he was appointed as the chief economist of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID. USAID has the largest aid budget in the world. We're looking at around $29.4 billion for 2023. If he's able to improve the cost effectiveness of this spending, we could see a massive impact. The next article for today we have is by Open Philanthropy. It's called Open Philanthropy Shallow Investigation tobacco control. Smoking is responsible for around 8 million deaths every year, roughly equivalent to the health damages of HIV and AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria collectively combined. Around 75% of the burn is in low- and middle-income countries. And while smoking rates are declining in most countries overall, population growth means that the total burden is expected to stay constant or to rise in many cases. There are many existing nonprofits in this space, but some small countries may be relatively neglected. However, it can be expensive to get tobacco control policies passed in these countries due to the small public health departments and tobacco industry pushback. The WHO, World Health Organization, has a six-pronged framework for reducing tobacco consumption and damage. The WHO's six-pronged strategy is specifically through policy, and out of these, the most effective seems to be raising tobacco taxes. 
An alternative that is rarely funded by philanthropy, however, is promoting the use of non-combustible tobacco products, such as e-cigarettes, for harm reduction. However, the evidence for how this affects population-level smoking rates is fairly mixed. The next post is by Samuel Dupret and Jewel McGuire called Pain Relief, a Shallow Cause Exploration. This is a link post for Happier Lives Institute's report on pain relief. This is a two-week exploration expanding on their previous work in this area, which focuses on the link between pain and subjective well-being, SWB. Although being fairly limited, the literature in this area suggests two points. First, those living with extreme pain versus no pain rate their life satisfaction as 0.5 to 1.3 points lower on a 0 to 10 scale. Dividing by an implicit 0 to 10 pain scale, where extreme equals 10, the higher end of results gives a 0.12 decrease in life satisfaction per point of pain. The literature also suggests that analysis of psychology-based therapies for chronic pain finds that they reduce pain by 0.24 SDs and improve subjective well-being by 0.26, approximately a 1 to 1 correlation suggesting a one-point decrease in pain could result in a one-point increase in subjective well-being. The two methodologies producing such different results makes cost-effectiveness analysis highly uncertain. As an example of how these two bullet points affect the overall cost-effectiveness analysis, we can see that calculations on advocacy for opioids is that, if we take the first bullet point, 18 times the cost-effectiveness of give directly in terms of increasing subjective well-being. However, if we take the second bullet point, that is the analysis of psychology-based therapies for chronic pain, that suggests a one-to-one, if we take that estimate, then we're looking at 168 times the cost-effectiveness of give directly. Despite this uncertainty, the authors believe that providing opioid for terminal pain and drugs for migraines are potentially cost-effective interventions. They suggest further research focus on narrowing the substantial uncertainty in conversion rate of pain to subjective well-being. And they also recommend investigating the potential of advocacy campaigns to increase access to opioids. Moving on to the community and media section for the week, the first post we have is by Jeff Kaufman called When Did EA Start? The EA movement, as opposed to just the ideas alone, didn't exist in 2008. However, between 2008 and 2012, we see it did get created. So here are some of the important events along the way. December 2006. GiveWell's first blog post came out. Early writings like this had EA ideas, but the ideas hadn't started gathering many people yet. 2009. Discussion on the Felicifia forum include threads on charity choice and applied ethics. In November of the same year, the first 30 people also joined Giving What We Can. December 2010. Roko Magic ran a contest on Less Wrong for the best explanation of EA. November 2011, 80,000 Hours was launched. Some EA organizations were found in this period or earlier, but only became EA over time. The next article we have is by Catherine Lowe. It's called, Have Worries About EA? Want to chat? Catherine works on CEA's Community Health and Special Projects team. You can either contact Catherine Lowe or the CEA team more broadly, through either email or via a form listed in the article. If you want to share any EA-related worries or frustrations, specific or vague are both welcomed. They also read through all the community-related posts and comments on the forum, and also can provide some potential feedback. 
They shared that they're currently feeling disappointed, worried, frustrated, and a bit angry at a few things they've read on the forum. They find it helpful to remember that a particular EA space like this forum isn't equivalent to EA itself, and that other spaces can feel much better, like in-person meetings or video calls. It's also okay to take a step back for a bit and re-engage later. The next article we have is called Celebrating EAG X Latin America and EAG India by Ollie Bass. In January, we had the first EA conferences to take place in Latin America and India. And overall, they were extremely, extremely popular. The events attracted 163 and 200 attendees, respectively. EAG Latin America received the highest, quote, likelihood to recommend score of any EAG event in 2022 coming in with a score of 9.07 out of 10. And EAG X India attendees made the most average new connections of any EAG or EAG X to date. That's 12.36 new connections per person. Given the success, CEA is even more excited about supporting events outside of EA hubs and particularly in low and middle income countries. You can read more about who attend the events, the talks, the types of talks, and the testimonials in the post. Native English speaker speaker EAs, could you please speak slower? By Luca Prodi. In this piece we covered last week, Luca announces, uh, I think around five, yeah, five pieces of specific tips for native English speakers on how to interact with non-native English speakers. This includes things like slowing the pace of your speaking, avoiding using too many metaphors, analogies, or technical words, Understanding and reinforcing to yourself that if the person you're speaking to isn't understanding or needs things repeated, it's not because they're slow or stupid. They're speaking a second, third, or sometimes fourth language after all. And reducing references to your country's politics or pop culture can also be a really major important thing in terms of respectfully interacting with folks who come from different language backgrounds. And also, please don't say you're doing great, your English is super good, or anything like that, it can really come across as extremely condescending. The next article we have is by Amy LeBenz and Sophie Thompson called Summit on Accentual Security 2023. This is an announcement for an invite-only event for professionals working towards accentual security to help orient to the developing accentual risk situation. CEA is sharing details for transparency and feedback reasons. Next by Sir H, or it might be Sjur, uh, depending on if it's Nordic or not, but this is an overview of effective giving organizations, and in this piece, uh, H <laughs> creates a spreadsheet and shares one overviewing 55 effective giving organizations. The last article for today is by Jason, and it's called Moving Toward More Concrete Proposals for Reform. The author has found high-level discussion of reform generally unhelpful because it's too easy for proponents to gloss over implementation costs and downsides, as well as for skeptics to attack straw men. They suggest commissioning 12 to 18 hour investigations into some of these reform ideas to flesh them out and tackle these issues. Ideally, this would be funded by interest, rank, and file EAs, and not existing major donors, to avoid actual or the appearance of conflicts of interest. If this project was a success in advancing the conversation into actionable territory, the next step might be to establish a small community-funded and community-run grant-making grant focused on reform-minded efforts. 
Well, coming in at just shy of 20 minutes, I want to thank you guys very much for listening to today's episode. And as I said in the intro, thank you so much to Zoe Williams for writing these. Thank you to Rethink Priorities for the general support to help make this happen. And thank you, of course, to Type 3 Audio for uploading it and making sure that everything on the technical side of things is working properly. And as always, guys, remember to stay engaged with the processes, actions, and approaches to life that leave you with a sense of meaning that you can cultivate because meaning motivates. Have a good one, you guys. See you next week.